from our childhood. We may even learn to depend a little bit on magic. A toddler falls down, bumps their knee, and screams bloody murder. You've seen this happen. But with the application of a band-aid, voila, the world is right again. Adults, too, have their magic. The expectation that someone will have just the right words, the secret formula, the special touch that will transform their lives. Now, these magicians aren't dressed in tuxedos and black capes, but they're wearing the garb of doctors and lawyers, psychologists, and stockbrokers. We expect them to make our problems vanish, don't we? And what's really amazing, though, is when we apply this desire for magic to our own sanctification, our own growth in godliness, the, the progress that we desire in the Christian life. See, one of the dangers that a lot of people take is this, this always amazed perspective when it comes to, to sanctification. They have this very romantic view of godliness. There are, are certain heroes in their faith that, that they've, they're living or dead. Perhaps it's someone they've read about or someone that they listen to their, their podcast. And, and they believe that those heroes have absolutely nothing wrong with them. And in fact, they will even defend them if someone would suggest otherwise. But they idolize these heroes. These, this type of person is, is often idealistic about how fast they will grow in their faith. And when it doesn't go quickly, they get discouraged. This type of person underestimates the reality of indwelling sin. They can't figure out why they're not happy all the time. They can't figure out why they're not perfect already. Why they're still struggling with sin or with joy or why they find worship unsatisfying. They're unrealistic about how growth actually takes place. They forget that God has appointed means of grace, and, and so they think either by, by, by reading about it or by somehow by osmosis, they will grow in their godliness. They turn their nose up at the idea of spiritual disciplines like prayer or Bible reading or church attendance. Those things are just too ordinary. They want something amazing. They want something magical. Or then there are those who are apathetic and disillusioned. They think they can see right through it. They think it's all simply an illusion. They don't have any spiritual heroes. And, and they're actually cynical about whether or not you can actually grow in holiness. They see faithful people around them in their church or out in, in public or, or in the news or other things, and, and they, they look for ways to cut them down. Oh, well, they must be a phony. Uh, they must be a fake, or, or, or they're probably just very legalistic. They're, they're Pharisees, for sure. But the problem here is this, this person underestimates the reality of the Holy Spirit living within the believer. And because they've become so apathetic, so disillusioned with the whole thing, they're unconcerned 
with utilizing the ordinary means that God has provided to grow them in godliness. They think, well, that will just never work. The truth that I want you to hear this morning that comes out of this text is that progress, progress in your Christian life, sanctification, whatever words you want to use, it's not magic. It happens by means. Notice, first of all, that that progressive holiness begins with our status. There's no question, probably among any of us, that one of the central themes in the Bible is holiness. The word holy, the word in the ancient languages where we get holy from, occurs over 600 times in the Bible. And over 700 when you include derivative words that we get our holiness and sanctify and sanctification. You can't make sense of the Bible or of God if you don't do something with the holiness of God and this holy God is intent on making a holy people and preparing them for a forever holy heaven. I mean, have you ever considered that the whole system of Israel's worship revolves around holiness? That's why you have a holy people, the priests, with holy clothes in a holy land at a holy temple using holy utensils and holy objects celebrating holy days in in order to be a holy nation. Now, at some basic level, at its most basic level, holiness means separation. When someone or something is holy, it has been set apart. It has been been given a different status. And in a similar way, God is holy because He is transcendent. He is different from everything He has made. He's separate. He's distinct. He's not ordinary. He's not common. He is God and there is no other. And we are called to be holy because He is holy. He sets us apart to live in a way that reflects that. But it's crucial to realize, and thus the reading in our confession, that in one very real sense, if you are in Christ, you are already holy. For centuries, theologians have rightly distinguished between justification that one-time declaration that you are righteous, and sanctification, that ongoing process of becoming righteous. Now that is good and fine, but there's something else that you need to know. And that is that when the New Testament uses the verb to sanctify, or the noun sanctification, It regularly refers to the saving work of God already true of those who belong to Christ. Take, for example, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. It says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In the book of Acts, in chapter 20 and 28, there are those who are called the sanctified ones, which is a synonym for Christians. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 will equate being sanctified in Christ with having been washed and justified. And you know, one of the things that I find so fantastic about the book of 1 Corinthians is that with all of the garbage that was going on in the church of Corinth, with all of the sin, with all of the mistakes, with all of the things they were getting wrong and doing wrong, Paul refers to them in the very opening of his letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Now I say all that to say that you cannot make progress in holiness until you have been made holy in Christ. Until you have been justified in Christ. And that's something that is abundantly clear to Peter as he writes this letter. I mean, look at how he addresses the letter in verse 1. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The standing that we have, the standing that is ours, is by the righteousness of of Jesus. You've got to, I want to be clear here because your growth and your holiness, your, your progress in godliness began the day that you were saved. And all other efforts in, in growing in godliness, all of them are futile and counterfeit and absolutely worthless if they don't start with your standing in Christ. And this is a standing that comes by faith. It's not in the amount of our faith, but in the content of our faith. Our faith doesn't make us righteous because we have enough. Our faith makes us righteous because of who our faith is in. That is the objective status that we have. And it puts us on equal footing with every other Christian of all time. We have the exact same level of imputed righteousness as the Apostle Peter. Now I know, you say, I don't really feel that way all of the time. You probably assume that when God looks at you and when he looks around, he sees various levels of, of holiness, uh, various levels of, of godliness. But you need to understand that the fundamental way that when God looks at you is He doesn't see a stair step comparing you to others that, that this is a level here and, and He's over here and she's up here. What He sees is you are either here in this domain of darkness, living in sin, separated from God, or you are over here in this kingdom of light that you have been delivered by His Son. That is the fundamental status that God sees you, that you are holy and have been sanctified by faith in Christ. And so in that sense, you have an equal standing. Think about it this way. Can you be more married than the couple sitting beside you? If you've been married one week or one year or one decade, you are every bit as married as another couple. Now there may be greater intimacy in your marriage, there may be greater fellowship in that marriage. But you are married. That is your status. You can't be more or less married. You either are or you aren't. 
And I say that to say, friends, if you are here this morning and you do not have faith in Christ, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Him for the righteousness that only He can provide, you cannot be righteous. You cannot grow in righteousness. If you think growing in godliness and in righteousness that God desires is happening apart from from faith in Him, then you are trying to drive a pickup truck across the Atlantic Ocean. You cannot get there from here. Progressive holiness begins with our status. Number two, progressive holiness is empowered by His provision. Look at verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Of which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through them He may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. Because of sinful desire. See there's not just a new status in Christ. There is a strength. That is in Christ. There is a strength that is granted to us. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In Peter's mind, he's saying, you've been given all the things that pertain to eternal life and the godliness along the way. This is an incredible strength. It is a, it's a complete strength. I mean, Peter doesn't say you've been given a few things necessary for life and godliness. Not some things that pertain to life and godliness. Not even most things. Everything you need for eternal life and godliness has been granted to you through Jesus Christ. This is a a compelling strength. When God saved you, He called you to a knowledge of His glory and excellence. Some translations describe it as his own glory and goodness. The idea is that seeing Christ, seeing his goodness, seeing his glory, the the beauty and loveliness of Jesus, that amazing Savior who was not afraid to get down into the muck of our lives, who would leave the glory of heaven to come down and hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners like us who, who, who would love these people despite their sin, but wouldn't love them in so little that he would leave them in their sin. They are drawn to him and they are given a strength, a, a strength to, to repent of their sin, a strength to trust him, a strength to follow him, a strength to become like him. And this strength, it continues. Peter says we've been given promises promises and hope promises of a future promises that we take comfort from and promises that we are cautioned by promises like Matthew 6:33 seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you like Matthew 5:8 blessed are the pure in heart For they shall see God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient 
for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. There's also promises like Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. These promises are are meant to both comfort us and and, and challenge us, to caution us. They they are truth of Scripture that are intended to, to strengthen us as we progress in faith. And they continue to do that as as the Spirit works them into our lives. As the Spirit reminds us of those things. As we hear those things preached week in and week out. As we read about these things in our own private Bible study. But this strength, it's it's complete, it's compelling, it's continuing. And it accomplishes something. This power, did you know this? It, It has a purpose. So that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, doesn't that sound interesting? You ever use that phrase in your evangelism? Hey, you want to become a partaker in the divine nature? That sounds perhaps a bit like you've turned into a mystic. Or some Eastern religion or some New Age mumbo-jumbo. But as it turns out, Peter is, is using terminology that would have been very common to, to the people in the time in which he writes. But he wants them to see that this is not some ontological nature. That you are actually becoming God. But you can take on, be a partaker of, one of the foremost attributes of God. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't say, be omniscient, for the Lord your God is omniscient? Have you ever noticed that God doesn't say, be omnipresent, for the Lord your God is omnipresent? But what does God say? He says, be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy, And that's one of the many reasons that God has saved you. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that He chose us before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That you would be like Him. He saves you from the corruption of the world so that you would bear His image, so that you would reflect His glory. That's why He saves us. That's why He strengthens us. That's why He provides means for us to grow in godliness so that we could be holy, progressively more holy. So this is a a progress that begins with our status. It's empowered by His provision. And the third thing that I want you to see is that it is achieved with our effort. Do you understand that progressive holiness is not a spectator sport? I know for a very long time there was this idea floating around in mainstream evangelicalism that that what you really needed to do was not to try harder, but merely Simply just trust. Common phrase was, let go and let God. I'm sure many of you have heard that. That if you would just surrender yourself to Jesus as master, because apparently up to this point he was only your 
Savior somehow. But if you would surrender to God every habit, ambition, hope, loved one, possession, that you could accomplish the great victory and that God would do all the work and that you could actually become perfect. One author of this higher life theology actually said, any victory over the power of any sin whatsoever in your life that you have to get by working for is counterfeit. Any victory that you have to get by trying for is counterfeit. If you have to work for your victory, it's not the real thing. It's not the thing that God offers you. It's not by straining and struggling that this blessed condition is brought about. It comes by a very real dedication of ourselves to God for this very purpose and with this as the special end and aim in view. Went on to say, just lie quietly before Him. Open all the avenues of your being. Let Him come in and take possession of every chamber. Especially give Him your heart, the very seat of your desires, the throne of your affections. Yield all up to Him and the Lord will enter bringing with him all the riches of his grace and glory, turning your life of duty into a life of liberty and love. Now, on the face of it, that sounds pretty good. There's a problem with that. And the problem is verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, now, this is tough. This is kind of tricky, especially for me, who, 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 who I, I put such a high position and priority on, on grace. But for me, and, and maybe for you if you're like me, in my own tendency toward laziness, I'll use grace as an excuse instead of as an energy. Now maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're the type that is always doing, always trying, always going, always evaluating your justification on the basis of your works. But at least for me, I might be just a little too quick to let go and let God. Because the Bible says make every effort. The Bible says put to death what is earthly in you. The Bible says put off the old self and put on the new. It lays out imperatives for us to follow. Jesus himself will say, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Brothers and sisters, grace does not make obedience optional. Grace does not make effort optional. Good works are not a condition for our salvation, but they are an obligation for our life. We cannot undermine the legitimate standards of the Bible without grave consequences. I don't misunderstand here. There is grace to be had. That's, that's where the strength comes from to make the effort. But this effort, as we see in verse 5, is to supplement our faith. Our, our faith, our justification is founded in Christ alone, but our faith never comes alone. Faith without works is not a living faith. You cannot be a non-practicing Christian. You can be a non-practicing Jew because Jewish is, is, is not just a religion, it's an ethnicity. But if you are a Christian, you are a practicing, working, doing, serving, believing, trusting, obeying 
Christian. Sure, it comes and fits and starts. It's certainly not a straight road to the top, but if you become a Christian, it comes with a changed heart. It comes with a desire to grow, and it comes with strength to change. And so Peter points out that in addition to our faith, that we're to add these moral characteristics. Now, time doesn't allow for me to define each of the things in this list and unpack them. And to be honest, I don't really think that's his whole point. I don't think Peter is laying out here a stair-step process of the sequential morals that you can add to each of your life. I think his point is that there is a growth process to be had. And it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that the the list begins with faith and it culminates in love. Did you pay attention to where knowledge fits into that list? Kind of near the beginning. For many of us, though, we assume that knowledge is the pinnacle of Christian maturity. We we assume that, that if you really want to grow in your faith, what you really need to do is go to seminary. You need to do some very deep, intensive study of God's Word. We, we tend to think that, that when you come to Christ, the first thing that you need to do is start acting right. And then after that, once your behavior is in line, then we'll start piling on the knowledge. And yet that's not the way it is in this text. Deep spiritual knowledge is not the culmination of godliness. Practical and profound Christian living, demonstrating love and affection for other people, showing self-control and perseverance, that is, in Peter's mind, the demonstration of growth in godliness. So if you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 50 years, my question to you is not merely, do you know your Bible more than you did five years ago? I hope you do. My question is, do the depths of your Bible knowledge, your grasp of the gospel, does it make you kinder than you were 10 years ago? Are you saltier than you were 10 years ago? Now, some of you may be salty. But I mean that in the best of ways. Are you salt and light? Is your gospel witness brighter today than it was when you first came to faith? See, I think there is nothing sadder than a Christian. whom You you presume to be a Christian because you give them the benefit of the doubt, but there's not real evidence of much growth. Who wants to be a person who has been a Christian for 40 or 50 years and yet, as Peter would describe it, is ineffective? Or unfruitful. Now, I don't want to make you question your justification this morning, but your sanctification. Are you making an effort? On the whole, I don't mean it in, in just an instance here and there and everywhere else, but, but on the whole, are you more holy now than you were five years ago? 
Again, don't just compare it to this morning. You haven't been awake long enough to be really bad yet today, I don't think. Or maybe you've had good days and bad days. Do you have a more faithful prayer life than you had a year ago? Are you more selective in the movies you watch than you were five years ago? Do you show more self-control when it comes to Netflix, to Facebook, to video games, to eating habits than when you first became a Christian? If not, why not? Are you making efforts now that by God's grace you'll be more godly at 75 than you were at 65? Are you making efforts that with God's strength you'll be further along at 55 than you are at 45? Now, I'm not asking you to keep a record of your growth. I'm not asking you to track every one of your sins and every one of your good works. It's not about percentages. It's about growing in godliness and these virtues beginning to flow through you and out of you and into the lives around you. Because here's the truth. D.A. Carson says it best. People do not drift toward holiness. He says, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Brothers and sisters, holiness, progressive holiness is achieved with your effort. So far, it's been my effort to answer two main questions. What makes us holy and how we grow in holiness? There's one last question that I want to answer. Why? Why? Are we to grow in godliness? And the great part of this passage is that Peter anticipates that question. He knows we're going to ask, why do we do this? Why do we keep trying when it seems so hard? When it's so painful? When it's so slow? Listen to how Peter answers that in verse 10. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Why do we grow? Why do we pursue holiness? Because it confirms our election. That's the fourth thing we see in this text. Progress confirms our election. Now what does that mean to make your calling and election sure? Well, if your election was God's sovereign plan before the foundation of the world to save you, His calling is the moment that He effectively spoke life through the gospel into your life and and regenerated you by the power of God's Spirit, that you were convicted of your sin, you were brought to repentance and faith. That was your calling. That you were elected and you were called. You were planned to be saved and you were actually saved. But there is something here, this answer to this, this, this question is that we have a tendency to forget. 
Verse 9 tells us that that's one of the main reasons we lack these qualities. These virtues that accompany spiritual growth is that we have forgotten that we have been saved. We've forgotten that we've been cleansed. It's quite possible that the reason that you're not growing in godliness is that you've forgotten who you are and what Christ has done for you. And as a result, you're trying to run a Mercedes on Kool-Aid. You're trying to do what cannot be done because you've forgotten the fuel, the, the, the grace, the, the, the power, that effort that, 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 that forms and motivates your efforts in sanctification. And we need to see that the Lord's desire for us in this passage is, is a certainty with ourselves of an eternity with the Lord. He wants us to have assurance. He wants us to know that we are His. Not because we nailed a stake down on a particular date of our conversion or that we wrote it in the front of our, our Bible. Your birth date is relatively unconsequential. I mean, how many of us actually remember the day we were biologically born? But is that the, the confidence on which we, we stake that we're actually alive? Of course not. But you do have confidence that you're alive this morning, don't you? What is that in? It's in your breathing. It's in your heart beating. It's in the fact that your cells are, are dividing. You're not confident that you're alive because you know the day you were born. You're confident that you're alive because your body is doing things. It's making an effort. The same is true of our Christian assurance. He wants us to be sure that we are His and our efforts, our faith-fueled, grace-driven efforts are for our good. Someone once said, the jewel of assurance does not fall into the lap of a lazy soul. The assurance is worth fighting for. See, I don't feel like a fighter, I feel like a failure, and I, I get that. But are you fighting? If by God's grace you are fighting, and even if you're faltering from time to time, you have an assurance, you have a comfort that you are actually His. You can be confident, not because you've earned it, but because you have confirmed it. As you struggle and fight and put forth effort to, that you are confirming to be what is true, what the Bible says is true of real believers. You are demonstrating the promises that God has made, that believers are new creations, that they do have a new heart, that they have been united to Christ. And as you grow, you're saying, here is proof. That what God said about believers is true. It's true in my life. Not in my failures, but even but in the fighting, in my desire to see these things happen, in the process, as these are increasing. The fact that it even says increasing means we haven't arrived yet. The assumption is that you have room to grow. And if you're not growing... You must either be in heaven, although I think there's going to be growth there too, 
or I, I, I don't know. There is, there is this growth, this progressive holiness, this progressive godliness helps us to sleep at night. Not our failures, but our fighting for holiness. And so we pursue holiness. We put forth effort. We make progress. Bring it just to close this way. Brothers and sisters, it is God's desire that you grow in godliness. There is no magic here. There's power, to be sure, wonder-working power. And I hope you see the power in this text, a, a power that flows from the Lord, a power that picked us up out of that domain of darkness, that transferred us to that kingdom of light, a power that flows from the cross through an empty tomb and by God's grace through your veins. Trust in the salvation that has been granted to you recognize your status and your strength, but never forget that when it comes to growth and godliness, trusting does not put an end to trying. Pray with me. Father, our hope is in you. Our trust is in the grace that we have been given through Christ. And may our vision of Christ propel us to holiness. May we be diligent. May we make every effort to grow, to be useful and effective, to be sure of our salvation, and to be more and more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.